0: had the great joy and privilege um,
1: this past December, on December 19th, of performing the first wedding ever in the Watermark Chapel. And it was a great celebration. And he's actually done another over spring break. He did his second, and um, it's booked. I mean, like for the next year at least, and sometimes twice a day um, it's being used on the weekends. And so I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a gorgeous facility. And I actually um, called and had them unlock it today. And so if you've never seen the chapel and been over there, I encourage you on your way out to stop by and take a look at our chapel. It's a great place to go to pray. Um, And who knows if you have a A little girl or a little boy, maybe someday, that'll be the site of a wedding. It's really fun though because the wedding photographers in town are actually, there are blogs, wedding bloggers, and several are actually saying, who've had the opportunity already weekly to do weddings there, are like, my favorite new site is the Watermark Building Chapel, it's awesome. But you know, it's, it's not about the building, um, but it's still really fun to have a great place to do something. And all of this wedding stuff, because we were a part of the premarital for this couple that just got married over spring break. And so all of this wedding stuff just got me to thinking because you see over spring break was when I really started to study this passage. And um, it just reminded me of one of the people in the bridal party. And that is The maid of honor. Now the maid of honor is kind of the grand poobah of the bridal party so to speak. She has the highest title or rank if there is such a thing and who really cares anyway because the fact of the matter is what her whole job and her whole function is for is to do what? Serve the bride. Yeah, her whole purpose is to bring glory to the bride on that day. She's there to calm her, to collect her, to support her, to hold her flowers for her, to arrange her train for her, to do whatever it is that will make her look her best on this day. And it so reminded me um, of this chapter and what Jesus, I felt like, was trying to communicate about leadership. Because he's talking here to the leaders about leading. And in God's view, we see it very clearly here um, in the early verses. We see that God's view is a great leader willingly takes the place of servant. Not so that he or she looks good or lowly to everybody. Oh, yeah, look at her. She's at the back of the line. I mean, doesn't she look good? I mean, that would be the whole wrong reason. But the reason is we are made to serve so that... um, or because of the fact that we are made to honor him. Once we take him as our Lord and Savior, that's our life purpose. See, if someone says to you, what's your life purpose? Well, I'm made to honor him. Thus the play on words, M-A-I-D, made to honor. Um, So, you know, okay, it's a stretch, but anyway, I was just stretching. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 23, please, and let's look at... Three aspects of leadership that I think are brought out in um, in this chapter, and we're going to look at three things: the explanation of leadership, and that is practice what you preach. And it was that the words are actually there. I was like, whoa, those words are in the Bible. Practice what you preach. Um, the second is the condemnation of leadership, and that's call a spade a spade, because that's what Jesus did. And the third is the lamentation of leadership. Never give up on those who go astray. That's what we're gonna look at today. So these first 12 verses are really the explanation of leadership. That's what Jesus is doing. So he's explaining what leadership is. And he does it the way that many great teachers today do when they're defining a term. Many times when you define a term, s- folks start with, let me tell you what it's not. And then I'll tell you what it is. Because many times we have such a bad model around us, we've only seen what it's not. So it's easier to identify with what it's not than what it really is. And that's what Jesus does here. So he starts in explaining to the disciples and the crowds what leadership is not. And I really just saw three things here. The first thing is, it's not talking the talk, but not walking the walk. You see, the Pharisees were the definitive um, interpreters of the Mosaic law. And so because of that, they knew the law. Every word, every dot, every tittle, they knew the word. So Jesus says, listen and obey what they are teaching. Because, see, the point is there's nothing wrong with the law. That wasn't the problem. But he goes on and says, but just don't do what they do. Wow, that kind of sounds a whole lot like a bad parenting manual, doesn't it? I mean, do any of you ever remember your parents or someone else's parents saying to you, do what I say, not what I do on some specific thing? That's awful. That is an awful, awful thing to do. But I can remember it. I can remember parents saying it who were practicing something over here, but they would look at the kid and, well, you're not 21, so you do what I say, not what I do, or whatever it was. And that's the Pharisees. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And then the second is these folks, what not, what leadership is not, it's not impressing men, living to impress men. You see, these leaders loved the admiration that their society gave them, all based on how they looked or appeared on the outside. And We see this so much for those that have been to Africa in Africa. I mean, we have worked so hard in the African Christian society to debunk this because, you see, what they want to do is, oh, the teachers have a special place. You're going to sit up here in front of everyone. Oh, the teachers, all these 150 women would be in line to eat, and it may be their only meal of the day. And what do they do? They pull us as the teachers out and go, oh, you've got to be at the front of the line. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're not at the front of the line. I'm not even sure I can eat that, but let alone, you know, these people need to eat that. And so, again, what's my reason? What's my motive? But, but so much there, there's a misconception of what leadership is. There's, they're see, thinking and seeing some examples that elevated leaders and do special things for leaders, and that is completely ah-biblical, anti-biblical. It is not at all what the Word is telling us here. And it just seems to me that they could have used the Pharisees' another look at great King David and what Samuel actually said about him when he was looking for him. Remember in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Don't look because I've rejected him because the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks, man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And that is, they should have read that. I mean, they knew it somewhere, and yet they had a hard time applying it. And they got caught up in how I look on the outside. And then the third thing I think that, that leadership is not, it's not showing preferential treatment. These two tie so closely together, it's kind of hard to separate them. But these were guys who sought the most prominent places. So not only did they dress a certain way, you saw that by the phylacteries, theirs were bigger and bigger, better than everybody else's. I mean, think designer phylacteries, that's what they were wearing. You know, they were wearing the designer ones. The designer robe, I mean, they had the designer robe. That's, that's who these guys were. And so not only did they look that way, then they sought again. The place to the right of the host. I mean, again, think of your wedding banquet or uh, rehearsal dinner. The kind of the table at the front. Well, boy, they would be there. I mean, whether they were part of the wedding party or not, I'm I'm a Pharisee, so I should be sitting at the front table. That's where they would look. Think front row seats to you too, or something. I mean, that's what they were doing. And then they they loved being called by the highest titles, Doctor So and So. And I'll never forget when a friend um, a friend's husband actually. Um, sat for a phd and the very next thing that i got from them was from doctor and mrs so-and-so i'm like oh i guess you didn't read this part because i'm not really sure that's something you should aspire to and i love it that on one of the very first times i met todd wagner i said something about my pastor and he looked at me with this alarm and he was like don't call me by that title i'm not i don't. I'm a fully devoted follower of Christ. I'm—I'm I'm a. Don't call me that. And and in here we saw this. Don't don't call me teacher. Don't call me rabbi. Don't call me pastor. I am a fellow struggler with you. We're in this together. No different. There's no difference between you and me. And it just reminded me of that verse. Um, And I'm just going to read it to you from James. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man in gold rings and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Oh, have a seat here um, at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Wow. I think I've done that. I do that. I do do that. We got to, that is not what leadership is. And so what is it? I've already said it before in here. It's the topsy-turvy world, which does remind me, by the way, girls, if you were one of the ones who found the thing under your chair and won the book, The Topsy-Turvy Kingdom, they're out there at Martha's Table. Pick it up. But I've talked on it before. What leadership, is? it's turning the world upside down. It's taking everything that you thought it was and saying, "Uh uh-uh, it isn't. It's not that. That's what leadership is. So you want to stand up and be noticed for being a leader? Well, then learn to step down. Wow. That's what Jesus says. To be first, be last. To be great, be least. Because greatness in God's kingdom is all based on humility. It's serving others. Again, how do you define humility? Some people define it as thinking of myself less. Again, it's not thinking of yourself less because then you're thinking of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all that's what it is and I forgot the guy that said it but I've said it to you before and it's a quote somebody actually said it and it's some great Christian ancient leader so anyway whoever he is I'd love to give him credit is it C.S. Lewis okay C.S. Lewis well man I should remember that one so it's not thinking less of yourself because see self is still in there it's not thinking about self at all can we ever be there Can I ever be there? No, I don't think so. I'm not even, if that's the case, I'm not even taking any ground here. I'm running backwards because you know what? This is so hard to do. Even in my own family, let alone with the rest of the world, I struggle. And yet 1 Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time, which for me, I don't really think it's going to be till I get to his kingdom, he may exalt you. And it's just so tough to teach because when you teach, God starts on you first. And so, woo, this one just really got me. I told you I started studying this over spring break. Well, let me tell you about my spring break. My spring break was when I took six college kids to Colorado to have the time of their life, cooking, cleaning, arranging everything for them. And I had a really great attitude about it when we left. Oh yeah, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be, I'm just the cook while I'm here. I'm going to be your servant. I'm here to cook. And that went really good for like a couple days. And then I'm not, I mean, we're talking, you know, breakfast was ready when they got up I mean I was the first one up because I had to have breakfast ready because we had to all be at the slopes at 8 30 so you know how to or eight or whatever okay well pretty soon I begin to resent my place because serving others is tough work just a bunch of ungrateful kids can't somebody get up and help clean up after we finish dinner? Why can't one of you or so-and-so even utter the words thank you for anything that has happened here? And then it hit me right between the eyes. I don't serve expecting nothing in return. I love the praise of men. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Thompson. That was such a great meal. Oh, thank you for getting up and having breakfast for us. I I love that. I want that yuck that is so yucky and if that wasn't enough then I realized not only do I like that and that's wrong and I need to confess that but the other thing is I am just like one of those ungrateful kids to God have you thanked him lately have you looked back at the last week and just said, God, I mean, I think of that and what have you done for me lately? I mean, you know, just that kind of that song of just, okay, God, sometimes I think, well, he hasn't really showed up lately. He not done anything. How ungrateful is that? He's the air I breathe. And have you taken a chance to reflect back on your last week and thank God for what he's doing in your life? The little tiny things. That's the attitude. It's all in the attitude that we display. What, what is your attitude when you serve those in your midst around you, whether it's your boss or your family or your neighbors? Listen to the verbs from Luke 7. Listen to this on the law of love. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Offer the other cheek to one who strikes you. Don't withhold your shirt from the one who took your coat. Give to everyone who begs from you. And as you wish men would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule, right there. It's biblical, right there, if anybody asks you. Yep, right there in Luke 7. There it is. Listen to all those. They're the anti they're just the anti of everything that you think. Are you kidding me? Luke seven thirty-five and 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. See, I expect something. Thank you, Mrs. Thompson. I'm expecting. And your reward, if you expect nothing, will be great in heaven and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful, college kids and me too, and to the selfish. <laughs> be merciful even as your father is merciful. And that takes us to the second thing that we see here, which is Jesus condemning leadership. Because you see, um, he, he turns things now, and he is going to call a spade a spade, just as he sees it. And I want you to think back to maybe your high school days, when you were part of a crowd or a group. Maybe it was in a classroom, maybe you were part of a sports team, maybe it was in your youth group, but you were in trouble. The group was in trouble for something. So the principal, the teacher, the coach, whoever was in charge, came in to address the group. And it's interesting, think back, because generally they kind of start generally And then somehow they would always narrow their focus and their eyes would rest upon the guilty parties, whoever they were. And so you might all kind of be squirming in your seat, but then they would just be drilling in on whoever had done the dirty deed in the group. And that just reminds me of what is happening here. Because Jesus starts broadly. He's talking to the crowd and to the disciples up to 12. And then starting in 13, he suddenly turns his gaze and he goes right at the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's going to say, you hopeless bunch of wretches. That's, that's an, another interpretation. But anyway, that's what he does. <laughs> and so he now levels into them. And you looked at this in your groups as you talked about it. And, and in our lesson, it actually talked to you in those little sidebars about comparing it or contrasting it to Chapter 5, the blesseds or what we know as the Beatitudes. And this is actually our memory work in Bible study. So I thought, how beautiful. And I love comparing contrasts. I love to make little charts. So I made a chart for you again and compared them. And look, okay, a little liberty with the word so it would kind of match up. But look at the blesseds of 5 compared to the curses in 23. In 5, you're blessed because the poor inherit the kingdom. But in 23, the proud, which was who the Pharisees and scribes were, they shut up. Or shut out the kingdom. People couldn't get to the kingdom because of the way they were acting. In five, the mourners will be comforted. But in twenty-three, in some translations, the the um, Pharisees were attacked. For devouring widows' homes, so the devourers are damned. In 5, the meat get the earth, but in 23, the proud send others to hell. In 5, the hungry are filled, and in 23, the greedy go away empty handed. In 5, the merciful get mercy, and in 23, the legalists reject mercy. They're anything but merciful. In 5, the inside is pure and actually sees god that's the term used in five and in 23 he just lamb them because their insides are dirty and he says because of that you will miss god and lastly in five the peacemakers and the persecuted become children of god and yet in 23 the murderers and the persecuted are what children of the devil. Can you imagine how that made the Pharisees, these bearers of the law, feel when he said those words? Are you kidding me? In summary, Jesus is saying to them, you didn't respond to God. Now he takes it and he actually uses the word you throughout 23. You didn't respond to God, nor do you let others respond. You devote yourselves to man-made rules that have nothing to do with the real purpose of the law. You um, make a big to-do over strictly enforcing tiny little ties of mint and herbs, and yet you don't even... Mess with the big stuff like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You focus on how you look on the outside, but your heart is full of greed and pride. You are just like your father's. And that is the most damning thing anyone can hear is that snide way. You're just like your father. People hate that when it's a bad comparison, and that's what he says here. You're just like them. You who had your fathers who had authority, they killed the prophets and the wise men of Israel. And the men, Pharisees and scribes, hearing this, I think were like, no way. We would never do such a thing. I think it's probably the very words uttered out of their mouth. And yet, hindsight's twenty twenty. we know these are the very ones who, a week later, will send the greatest teacher of all. To the cross. And so, man, what does that tell us? And just hypocrisy is really, Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly throughout Matthew calls these leaders hypocrites. And what we know is that that term literally means it depicts someone acting out a part in a play. And the Greeks, in the old... um, ancient theaters actually took masks. I think this is where you get the whole Mardi Gras idea of masking yourself. They, they would wear a mask for the part that they were to play in a play so that you didn't see who the real person was. You wouldn't see who they were, they, were just, they would hold this mask over their face to play a part. And isn't that many times what we do as believers? We mask who we really are. You don't know what I really struggle with, that I struggle with pride, flares of anger, that I struggle with unfaithfulness in my marriage. You don't know that I struggle with purity um, and uh, aborted a child. You don't know because I've never been able to take the mask off and tell you. And a great book on this subject is called True Face, and I would love to talk about it, but I just want to encourage you to grab a copy it really compels you to take off the mask that you've been wearing, remove it, and be who you really are, a sinner desperately in need of grace, the grace of our Savior. And that really just begs the question, have you taken an inventory lately of your heart? Because he land blasts the Pharisees, and yet so much of that, I'm like, wow, mm, uh, zinger. Somebody actually said that word earlier, zinger. That was a real zinger because It was aimed at my heart. If you're not heeding the blesseds on the left side of this chart, the blesseds, then you're in need of a heart check and some work. Because James, again, James 1, tells us, "...be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he's like a man who observes himself in the mirror. He goes away and forgets at once what he looked like. So I saw myself, but I forget." But he who looks into the perfect law that the Pharisees were all about, the law of liberty and perseveres, becomes not just a hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts, and he will be blessed in doing so. And that takes us to the last thing that happens, and that is we see this picture of Jesus lamenting in leadership. He laments because... There were those he would love to have saved, and they were going astray. And I think the lesson is don't ever give up on those who've gone astray. I think it's deeply moving that after giving them a tongue lashing and whipping them around, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he's really speaking of leaders of Jerusalem. If only you would have listened, because he knew the end from the beginning. And it causes you to go, really? I mean, weren't these the guys that were blatantly so off base that, why didn't Jesus go, good, I'm just going to tell you now, you're going to get what you deserve, it's coming, so just get ready. But he doesn't do that, instead he laments, weeps, it says in some translations, weeps over the state of these people. And I thought, hmm, I think I probably tend to go more, good, you're going to get what you deserve, instead of lamenting over those that have gone astray. And... You know, I think it's easier to lament when you've never dealt with one who's gone astray. And maybe you've never parented a prodigal child. Because if you'd had a child, whether it was your own biological or adopted child, who you had loved, built into, invested in a lifetime, if you've never had them look you in the eye, turn and thumb their nose at you, and go their own way, then... Only then would you know the, the depth of this lament that Jesus had. Um, that's what Jesus is feeling. And so what do we learn from that? I think, number one, recognize you're not in control of their actions. As much as Jesus loved them and longed for them to be reconciled to him, he wanted to bring them under his wings where he could protect them from the persecution to come. But they would not. He couldn't make them. He could only turn them over to themselves and release control and just let them do what they're going to do. And this is very excruciatingly painful to do, especially if you see the object of your love and years of investment Forsaken and desolate, and that's what he call, he's, he's speaking of the church here, but he's speaking of the people and the leaders, because the temple represented that was the leaders, and he's like it's forsaken, it's desolate, and it literally will become that in AD 70 when it's t- torn down, and he'll speak of it in the next chapter. And then the second thing that I think is that we learn is we got to keep doing good and praying and and wooing the return of them. Just as Jesus does. The nation of Israel will one day turn again to Jesus. And we see that in 23. What Jesus says is ultimately closing out. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, and you is Israel you will one day say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And great, I got my whole Bible. I can run to Revelation, and I can read the end of the story and listen what it says in Revelation 7. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, from every tribe of Israel. 12,000 sealed out of Judah, 12 out of Reuben, 12 out of blah, 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 all the way to the end. There they are. Israel comes back. They're there. It will, they will come again. He knew the beginning from the end. And in all this, we just have to realize that it isn't God who sends people to hell. They send themselves there by their own willful choices, by simply refusing the gift and the mercy that he has to give. We've got a great ministry here that I want to just briefly talk a little bit about that's relatively new, and many of you might not even be aware of it, and it's called the Prodigal Child Ministry. And I'd like to briefly introduce you to the founder, and I'm going to have Jenny come up, um, one of the co-founders, and Jenny is actually one of our leaders here in Bible Study, too. And um, I just want to ask um, Jenny a few questions about this, and Jenny, of course, founded this because, believe it or not, she's had a prodigal child. And so tell us briefly about your prodigal child experience. Okay,
0: is this on? It'll come out. Oh, I have to give my husband credit too. He's, he's the mastermind behind it. The Lord is, but my husband did all the work. But anyway, um, we have a son, and um, it, it, at one point in his life, he started making some poor decisions and turning away from the values he'd been raised with, godly values, and then um, as he got older, Um, it became evident that um, he was actually addicted to drugs. And um, so with, I'm going to make this really brief, it's a much longer story and I'd love to share it with each one of you, but um, (laughs) through our community group and wise counsel from the church we decided to send our son off to treatment and um, what we learned through this experience um, not only in treatment but through um, just what the Lord taught us and how we learned to trust and and um, you know how much we loved our son, and what love looked like to a prodigal is a little different from maybe what the world thinks it looks like. Um, we just, you know, the Lord was um, just really leading us to share what we had gone through and and help others who were going through the same thing. Um, I know when you're going through this experience, you really yearn to talk to someone who can relate to what you're saying and has had the same experiences with a child. So um, what we are doing, we, we were so open that we would, people would send people, couples to us and say, oh, can you speak to so-and-so? They're struggling with their child. And as we did this, uh, someone said, well, you need to start a ministry. And, and the Lord really put that on our hearts, and we prayed about it. And my husband you know, really came up with a lot of um, just scripture to back up things and, and just a really um, came up with the <coughs> curriculum sort of. And what we do is we meet. Should I go ahead? Yes, tell us about meet, it. We're meeting on Monday nights in connection with CR, and when everybody breaks off into groups, we break off and go up on the seventh floor. And um, what we're doing is we're just trying to give hope to parents in the midst of chaos because it is chaos. It's chaos for the family. It's chaos for the parents. And we're just trying to give hope and encouragement um, and use um, Scripture to back up really how to love that child and um, and really just to... Just to support, encourage, and um, and give wise counsel, and um, it's been great. We have it, it's not really been announced to the church yet, but it's flourishing, and and there is a need. There is a need, and it is meeting a need, and and it's been the Lord has really blessed it. So, so tell us just briefly, where's your prodigal now? Well, my prodigal is um, t- almost twenty six years old, and he is. Uh, in a better place than he was uh, we have set boundaries and he is as far as we know sober but still not walking with the lord totally he was he and my husband were up at um, the christmas eve service with a cardboard he is he he is a believer there is no question in my mind is he walking with the lord no you know he's not willing to give up some of the some of the friends and some of that lifestyle but we as parents have learned how to love him and how to support him but not enable him. And that's a a term we talk about a lot, is not enabling. He is on his own, working, and so that is a great, that's a a great, we're still praying for him. You know, he is still, this is still major prayers for him to, you know, to come back totally to the Lord. But he's he's a sweetheart of a kid, got a great heart, but still um, has some growing up to do.
1: And that's the lamentation. Never give up on those that have gone astray. And, you know, really at some level, every one of us sitting here is a prodigal in some way. If not, if you didn't do that for a season in your life, then for a moment. Um, There are moments in my life still when I go my own way and thumb my nose at God and say, "Mm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do or what you're calling me to do. And at that moment, I become a prodigal. And I just love the story of the prodigal. And so as we close, just let us be women who come back to the maker of our soul, just like that prodigal son did when he returned to his father. So today, I encourage you to go back and read through the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15 and put your name in the blank um, and think about how the father celebrates over you. And then um, I'm literally going to do it, and I'm going to close us in this verse bring quickly the best robe and put it on Lucina and put a ring on her hand and shoes on her feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry for this my daughter was dead and yet she's alive again she was lost but she's been found so so let's just remember him and his mercy to us today and um, let's just close Father I just thank you that you are the ever-loving Father in that picture, that you stand with open arms and are just waiting, and if any woman has gone astray here today, in the, uh, gosh, in the last 24 hours, I just pray that she would confess it now and run to you, just run back to you and to those open arms where she can be called daughter again. Just thank you for your love and your mercy that is new to us every morning. In your name we pray, amen.